Imagine a disaffected employee being called into the manager's office. His managers just received this employee's notice to quit, but since the firm doesn't want to lose this person, the manager's been instructed by head office to do all in his power to keep the services of this particular employee. To do that, he may offer an increase in pay or even a promotion. He's sure to emphasize the benefits to the employee in staying where he is. These benefits may take the form of a top-of-the-range company car, a generous health care package, or a very good holiday allowance. And on top of all that, he may be told that there are career opportunities this company can give him which no rival company can ever hope to match. Ultimately, it's down to the individual after weighing it all up. Now think in terms of the Holy Spirit appealing to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to remain loyal to what they've been taught, to stay in the place of service and worship into which the Holy Spirit had previously led them, a place agreeing fully, of course, with the New Testament record of the Apostles' teaching. An appeal in exactly those terms is found in one of the Bible letters found in the New Testament. It's not the most popular letter, perhaps. I've even heard it described as the forgotten letter of the New Testament. It's the letter written to the Hebrews, in other words, to some of the very first Christians, who were, of course, Jewish. But why should these early Jewish Christians have considered leaving behind the local Christian church fellowships, which are referred to so many times on the pages of the New Testament as the Church of God at some place or other? For example, at Corinth. Why on earth would they want to leave? To answer that, we're going to need to transport ourselves back into the time of the New Testament. The very first followers of Jesus Christ had come out of Judaism. For generation after generation, they'd been brought up to follow the law and teaching of Moses. It had been, of course, God's teaching for his people, delivered to them by Moses, but it was from God. But that law was never intended to be an end in itself. Its purpose was to prepare the nation of Israel for their Messiah. Another reason the law served was to show to the people how terrible sin in the human heart is. But that too, in turn, served only to underline their need for the Messiah God was going to send them. Then the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth and his chosen apostles over against this religious and cultural background, declared to the nation of Israel that he, Jesus of Nazareth, was in fact the promised one, their long-expected Messiah. But human thought is generally at odds with God's thoughts, and so when Jesus came to his own people, even with all his miraculous credentials, they, his own people, did not receive him. But some did receive him, and to them he gave the right to become children of God through their believing in his name. From these, the first disciples were formed. Now Matthew is the first of the Gospel accounts, and it's usually accepted that this was written, in the first instance, for a Jewish audience. Why? Because it has a dozen or so significant quotations taken from the Old Testament, and which span the life of Jesus on earth all impressively relating the expectations of the law to their fulfilment in Jesus Christ, including his death on the cross and well-attested resurrection. 
If you like, just as the city of Istanbul stands astride the two continents of Europe and Asia, so Matthew's Gospel stands like a bridge connecting the Old and New Testaments. Many Jews made the crossover, but a great many, including many of the leaders, didn't. They held fast to the old ways of Judaism and regarded Christianity as a sect. Their attitude was hostile to this new faith, just as we see in the example of Saul of Tarsus before his famous conversion on the road to Damascus. As we read the very first history book of Christianity, called the Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament, we read how the Christian faith spread outwards from Jerusalem, its spreading flames fanned by persecution. And soon we're reading of multitudes of Jews professing Jesus as Messiah and following him by keeping the teaching of the apostles, which of course was Jesus' very own teaching. But Judaism was not a comfortable cradle for Christianity. A young person embracing Jesus by faith as a Messiah might be driven from his or her home. Neighbours, zealous for the old ways, might destroy the possessions of Christians living near them. Many were hounded and persecuted and fled for their lives. All this was under God's control, of course. Fleeing Christians spread the good news of forgiveness of sins to all who believed in Jesus Christ as the one whom all the Old Testament prophets had pointed forward to. The rejection of Christianity by the Jews nationally was a key part of God's master plan to bring the same good news to the Gentile world, and so Christianity spread further into Europe and Asia as it then was. Some of those early Jewish converts, who doubtless graced some of the very first New Testament churches of God, about which we read so much in the New Testament, after a while they began to struggle. The pressures on them were great. Their situation reminds us of the parable of the sower told by the Lord Jesus. Do you remember his reference to the seed which fell on rocky ground, where there was only a thin depth of soil? As a result, the plant had little by way of roots and shriveled up when exposed to the heat of the sun. By the time we come to the letter to the Hebrews, near to the back of our Bibles, it's already clear that some of these Jewish Christians were feeling the heat. Under conditions of intense persecution, sometimes involving an acute separation from close family members, returning to their roots in Judaism must have seemed like an attractive proposition to some of these Hebrew Christians, for it would mean being reconciled with unconverted family members. Attractive as that might have been, however, the cost was also immense. For to draw back in that way was to turn their back on Jesus, recant their professed faith in him as the Messiah, and reject the apostles' teaching, which up until then they'd been following. This, then, was the choice facing them, either to return and re-immerse themselves in mainstream Judaism, or to remain separate from it and stay loyal to the separated New Testament community of churches of God where each individual disciple could be described as being companions of a rejected Messiah. The letter to the Hebrews, then, is a letter containing five major warnings directed to people just like that. And the structure of the letter around these five warnings centres around a very distinctive disclosure 
which the Holy Spirit makes to these Christians who were under pressure and whose loyalty to the Apostles' teaching was being tested to breaking point. It's a disclosure, a revelation, which features in no less than six of the chapters of this letter. You see, to dissuade them from the error of allowing themselves to be attracted back to the comforting rituals of Judaism, the Holy Spirit discloses, for the first and only time on the pages of Scripture, an absolutely breathtaking revelation, one that's seemingly calculated to present the highest possible appeal not to fall away from service in churches of God. We use the illustration in opening today of a business manager aiming to persuade an employee to remain loyal to the company by spelling out the distinctive opportunities which the company offered and which couldn't be matched anywhere else. I hope we can now see the relevance of that. Through the writer of this letter, the Holy Spirit presents teaching designed to bring about a greater appreciation of this truly outstanding privilege, declared then to be a feature of those churches which were loyal to the Apostles' teaching. As elsewhere in the New Testament, this community of local churches is viewed collectively, among other things, as the house of God. And a disclosure? Well, it's this, that being part of the spiritual dwelling place of God on this earth brings with it the astounding privilege of actually being able to draw near and enter into God's presence in heaven. But, and I want to emphasise this, it means to do this collectively as the people of God together, viewed here as a priesthood, one answering to the family of Aaron the priest in the time of Moses. Now at first, we may not register just how distinctive an honour this is. For each living member of the body of Christ is surely able to experience the presence of God in their lives. And of course that's true. Praise the Lord for it. But this disclosure in Hebrews of a specific entry into God's presence within a heavenly sanctuary an entry performed by a people together who are actively serving the Lord according to his will in Scripture. This has simply got to be different, far beyond a single believer's day-to-day experience. Or else this dramatic appeal to the original recipients of this letter 2,000 years ago would lose all its impact. For even those of them who did end up walking out of the first New Testament churches of God at that time would always remain members of the church which is Christ's body. But they'd miss out on this awesome privilege. That's the point. The privilege which is spoken about here precisely in terms of those who remain true to the Apostles' teaching and did not return to the law of Moses. The modern context of Christianity is rather different, at least for many of us. It's almost as if many brands of Christianity have come about, and the believer seeking guidance can seem like a consumer in the marketplace. In this series, we want to apply the lesson of the Holy Spirit's appeal then. Where can we find a clear grasp of this distinct privilege, and how does practising it relate to the original mould of Christianity?